0: I think you do things in the right way within our industry, you know, you make the product the right way, you look after the reputation, you make quality product, even when you could make it a little bit cheaper, nobody would notice for a little while, but it's not the right thing to do in the long term.
1: You're listening to the Make It British podcast. I'm Kate Hills, and I'm on a one-woman mission to save UK manufacturing. I invite you to join me each week when I'll be sharing the stories behind some of the best British-made brands and UK manufacturers and offering you advice and tips for making in the UK. So let's crack on with the show. Hello and welcome to episode 126 of the Make It British podcast. I've got a very special treat for you today because I am interviewing Simon Cotton, who's the chief executive of Johnson's of Elgin, which is the largest textile manufacturer in the UK. So they're based in Scotland, they're known for their cashmere. They were actually the first company to bring cashmere weaving to the UK. In this interview, Simon talks about the history of Scottish cashmere, how he's making his business more sustainable and about how his company is surviving post-COVID-19. Enjoy. Hello, Simon. Thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Hi, Kate. Nice to see you again.
1: I can't believe it's taken me this long to get you on the podcast. I think we're up to episode 120-something, and you're the biggest textile manufacturer in the UK, so you should have been on a lot sooner.
0: I know. We did talk about it right at the start, and then I guess time, time never was right. But uh, yeah, we're here.
1: Exactly. And I was going to fly up to Scotland to do the interview, but as it as it turns out, we're doing it remotely at the moment, but I will be up to Scotland to see you when we're properly all back up and running again.
0: i look forward to that.
1: So in um, doing my research for this, I had a thought I'd have a quick look over your LinkedIn profile again, because you're so active on LinkedIn. So I thought I'd take another peek. And you describe yourself as being as proud to head up the most exciting company in the UK textile industry. I love
0: it. Please explain. You know, it's, it's kind of like a dream ticket coming to work at Johnson's. They do such amazing things with fabrics and structures, innovation, such a, a core part of what they do. Um, and if you're in textiles and, and you you enjoy textiles and you enjoy fabrics and you enjoy structures, for me, there's no better place to be. I mean, they just that that whole playfulness and creativity that we get on our own brand, but also working with these amazing private label customers who who want the next new thing, they want the next new idea. It's, it's fantastic.
1: Hmm. So because your background, so you're a marketeer by trade, aren't you? Your background is actually not in textiles. You were previously, your previous job, I noticed, was working for a kitchen manufacturer.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I spent five years um, manufacturing kitchen sinks and selling them around the world. Um, before that, I was eleven years in textiles, so I have spent mm-hmm. most of my careers in textiles but of course it's one of those industries where you're if you 've not been born into it for three generations then you're you're a new boy so i'm still a new boy in the textile industry
1: so what's been the biggest um learning curve for you then coming over to johnson so you've been there how many how many years have you been there now
0: um it's about six and a half years now uh, and every day i 'm learning something new so it it is Obviously, what we're doing in terms of the level of what we're doing is is, is incredible, working with, with the best luxury brands in the world. Um, you know, I, I came from a textile, a part of the textile business where we were mass producing t-shirts and sweatshirts and things like that. And we, we wanted to do products that sold more than 50,000 units. Um, and of course, that's not possible at this level. And you're working with tiny volumes of very, very special things, but cumulatively quite big numbers. Um, but generally speaking, it's it's like a say a, a very bespoke operation, but on quite a, a, a good scale. Um, so it's it's quite bizarrely complex. You know, mm. it is a very very complex business. There's all sorts of aspects to it. We have our own shops. We have our own e-commerce store. We even have two coffee shops yep. to, to run. You know, all this stuff and. It does make every day very, very interesting. Um, but it does mean as well that the, the only way to run it is you have a really, really strong management team and you give them a lot of control and a lot of um, responsibility. Uh, and I'm very lucky in the team that I've got, you know, takes full advantage of that and, and really runs their own area uh, superbly well.
1: Because you're spread out over two main sites, Hoyk and Elgin. Yeah. And its it... it, is it- it's knitting in Hoyk and weaving in Elgin. Is it all kept separate like that?
0: It, it is pretty much. Yeah, that, that's the, the, the easy way to look at it. So um Elgin's the original site and the largest site and where we have all the weaving operations. And, and Hoyk was established really to take advantage of the amazing skills that are in that town for making knitwear and where it's had a huge uh, history. But Hoyk's quite well established now, so it's no longer... Uh, a new mill, even though sometimes we talk about it in that way. Um, we also have a couple of satellite manufacturing locations down in the borders where we are doing um, extra embroidery and some of the the, the sewing elements because it is all about skills. Mm. You know, sometimes where you locate is just about getting the right skilled people at this level. So you've got to have experts, um, and we didn't have experts on knitting in in Elgin, um, and when we established. Uh, the, the locations at Inalitha and Walkerburn and that was because we knew there was good skills in those areas.
1: Mm, yeah because the Scottish Borders has always been known for it's knitting hasn't it and it's absolutely intarsia. it's amazing history mm. yeah yeah and I noticed that you're now doing you've got Intarsia within your collection as well haven't you which is a very specialist thing.
0: We do just a few specialist pieces um, as, as sort of uh, halo pieces for the collection yeah
1: so the history of of Scotland and the cashmere business in Scotland. Scotland is world renowned for its cashmere. How how did that come about? I mean, how what does because Johnston's is how many years old now? Over, well over two hundred.
0: So this this is uh, our two hundred and twenty third year. So we started in seventeen ninety seven, um, and in eighteen fifty one we bought in the first bale of cashmere which was used for weaving in the UK um, so that really started off the UK's uh, cashmere industry by around about 1855 we believe we were de that me- mechanically so one of the big things with cashmere is as it comes off the goat you need to strip away the guard hair um, in, in a mechanical process you know so once, once the goat's been combed you take the guard hair and the fine underhair which is what you want Uh, They're all mixed together. You've got about 50% of one, 50% of the other. And you want to de-hair that. You want to take the guard hair away. And that's the first process that really starts industrialization. So um, we think that was established at Johnson's about 1855, um, which was quite a long, quite a number of decades before the next process was was replicated um, and, and used elsewhere. So that was really the kickstart of it. And it it moved Johnsons onto a different journey. I mean, we started up as a local woolen mill, making blankets for local hospital, using the local uh, sheep's wool. But really, when we started experimenting with things like cashmere and before that with vicuna and alpaca, um, that really moved us into a different direction as a specialist in fine fibers. Uh, And that's been the secret, really, because at that level of the market, UK manufacturing works really well because it's a more expensive product. It requires a lot of care and a lot of love to get the the real beauty of the product um, out of the fiber. It's very delicate. It's very easy to break. So, And you can cover the higher labor costs you pay in the UK are absorbed within a much more expensive product. So, um, Mm. it doesn't become uncompetitive. So it works very well for that type of fiber. And it has been a big part of the secret, the company's success, that move. I think if we'd have stayed Mm. with, with just wool, it would have been a different story.
1: So was Johnson's the first company to bring cashmere knitting and cashmere weaving to Scotland.
0: Cashmere weaving. Yes. Yeah. Ah, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, it's an amazing history to have. And we've a- actually got the, the records of, for example, the first cashmere bale coming in. And we've got this amazing archive up in Elgin, um, which we'll get to see, um, mm-hmm. where, where you can see these handwritten records of cashmere bales coming in, uh, coming in from China through a London wool merchant, um, and then being used in the, in the mill for weaving. So it's incredible because it's it's alive. You know we're in the same location, we've never moved. Um, and we've got all these amazing records.
1: And your Kashmir comes from Mongolia now. is that Is that right?
0: No, it comes it comes from a combination of countries. So for for weaving, it's very helpful to use different colors and different qualities coming from different areas. So we use Kashmir from Mongolia, from China, which is in a Mongolia region. Uh, and a little bit from Afghanistan as well and what we're trying to do with with the weaving uh, fiber is we're trying to do as little as possible to that fiber it's really really delicate so you don't want to be bleaching it you don't want to be dyeing it too much you don't want to be heating it too much you want to be very gentle when you're going through a carding process so we're we're carefully selecting what is the right fiber for that product and mixing a number of fibers within it um, so it it's it's really we use over twenty types of different cashmere fiber, um, and it's that combination and the skills to put those combinations together in the right way that's really important.
1: Ah, so that's like your secret sauce—a bit like the it's, Kentucky Fried Chicken Colonel Sanders secret recipe. I'd oh, probably say
0: it's it's one of the secret ingredients anyway.
1: Yeah. So, because not all cashmere is created equal, is it? I'm sure you know. People have bought cashmere jumpers before that have pilled really easily. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I've got Johnston's jumpers. They just don't pill at all. For anyone not knowing what pilling it is, it's when you get the little bobbles on your knitwear, isn't it? So that's obviously another secret you've got. Is that because of the combination of all the yarns that you mix together?
0: I mean, it's it starts with the fibre. I mean, if you use very good fibre, you can you, you can get a very good result. And, you know, generally speaking, we are using the best fiber that you can buy. I mean, there are, there are loads of people doing de-herring in Mongolia and China. There are relatively few that we can use. I think in Mongolia now, out of 28 de-herring plants, we are using two, sometimes three, of those who can hit our quality standards, and the rest can't. Um, but right throughout the process, I mean, you start with this incredibly fine, long fiber. And during the process, you can probably only make it worse, you know? So you can right. damage it through the carding process. You can damage it through the dyeing process. You could bleach it. You can do all these things to it. You can break it in the weaving process. So you're trying to preserve it and look after that fiber as much as possible. And that's why cashmere is so different from other fibers like cotton, which is so robust and you can do so much with. You know, you really have to nurture it with. So that's when when you come to the mill, you'll find some real, um, heritage pieces of equipment because the heritage pieces are much much gentler than a modern production orientated uh, piece of equipment and they can nurse that product through and look after it um, because you want that really great fiber that you started with to be represented there in the in the finished product so it's a combination of good fiber, the right equipment, and the right know-how you know mm. and sometimes it's the latest most modern equipment and sometimes it's equipment from the 1960s it just has to be what is right to look after that fiber
1: yeah I was gonna ask that because as you were saying you use some of the you know original old equipment how do you balance that with using technology because I know you're really keen on technology as well aren't you so how do you find that balance between the heritage and using what technology has to offer in terms of speeding up processes and making things more efficient and less wasteful
0: yeah, I mean, I love, I love technology and innovation and we all love our, our new toys in manufacturing. <laughs> um, it, it's got to be what's right, you know. Um, if if the new equipment will do a better job, we'll invest in the new equipment. If the if the traditional equipment is doing the best job that can possibly be done, then you might put new controls on it, you might put new measurements on it, um, But but let's preserve that equipment. It's not about... It's not about throughput. It's not about fast production. It's about really making the best product we possibly can.
1: Mm. So how many people do you have working at Johnson's across all your different sites?
0: We're just under a thousand.
1: And you've bringing, because oh, that's a lot, isn't it? So that does make you the biggest textile um, business in the whole of the UK. In by terms by of employees, of employees, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So how are you bringing new, the new generation into the business?
0: Yeah, it's a big it's a big focus for us. I mean, if you look at where we are, we're in rural Scotland. So we don't mm. have, you know, it's not as if we're in Elgin where we've got very few mills nearby. In Hoyt, there's more mills, but still you, you want to generate that next generation of skills. So we spend a lot of the time on, on learning and development. Everybody in the organization has a learning development plan, which is refreshed each year. Um, We do a huge number of modern apprenticeships. We've done over 100 so far. Um, And we're looking to develop that even further. We have really everybody is engaged in some way with either learning or training. And we want that very much to be the culture. You know, it's continuous development. And if continuous development for the company can only happen if our people commit to continuous development, including me, you know, it has to be every, every single one of us taking that opportunity every day to, to, to get better, to get better in what you're doing, to get better in terms of flexibility, because the stuff that we're working on now, you know, very often we're asking people to multi-skill so that we can transfer if demand changes, because we're tied up with fashion, obviously. Um, And, getting better because we want to do even more going forward so we're not just wanting to replace the the person who's retiring after 30 years in the company we're wanting to make the next person who comes in even better and able to do even more um so that's a continual it's a continual challenge to just keep the skills level moving forward Mm. not just replacing but moving forward all the time um but everybody's up for it and i think once. Once people get their heads around that's what life is, everybody quite enjoys it because it's nice to come into work and learn something new and not just be doing the same thing for, forever in your career, just to keep moving on and to, to challenge yourself and to, to have a, a new opportunity. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, you know, mm. that's what we want, I think, from our from our jobs.
1: And locally as well, you must be seen as a great employer to work for.
0: I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to think so. Certainly that's that's what, the, the the team is is very loyal. I mean we have over a hundred people out of that workforce have more than twenty years um with the company. So they stay they stay with us. They give a, an awful lot of time and dedication uh to us. So hopefully that says says something. But they, they don't they don't come into work for twenty years because of me, because I've not even been there for twenty years. They come <laughs> in because there's a they, one, they love the product. I mean I think most of our people are, are, are really in love with what we do as a, as a company, which is fantastic. But secondly, there's a, I'm not even sure whether this might be the first issue, is it's a community. You know, it's, we're, we're in a rural area, people come to work, they, they build up friendships, uh, they support each other, they go the extra mile for each other. I mean, I never I never have to Push people to go the extra mile. You know, if we if we ask for something to happen, everybody puts their hand up. It's the best workforce I've ever worked for. They're fantastic. So, um, yeah, I I I think we're a good employer, but we're a good employer because we've got great employees.
1: Mm. I mean, that's great to hear about community, and never has that been more important than now, as we're you know, with time of recording this, we're just coming out of the other side of the the big lockdown. How how. Has the COVID situation affected Johnson's, and how do you think you'll kind of pull out of the other side?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's been a bizarre time, and we, we, we closed down completely. Um, mm. We had the instruction from the first minister in Scotland to close down on, on a Monday lunchtime, and uh, we had closed down the operations completely, sealed off the machinery, etc., within twenty four hours, um, and that was a great achievement by the, by the team. Um, we're now operating again and we've got people back in the mills and we're, we're, we're producing, but with huge attention to, to, to safety, obviously got to be a, a massive priority for us. Um, and we know, we know that coming through this, you know, we've got some, we've got some challenges as everybody has. It's been, it's been a tough year. It's not the year we expected to have at the start of the year, but I think as well, we've learned a lot about what we're. What we're good at and what we're capable of. I've seen so many people step forward in the organisation and go that extra mile and take ownership and come up with creative solutions for how they can work safely and how they can do things in a better way. Um, so I'm really more than ever impressed by the organisation and how it's pulled through in this this situation. We did have a couple of nice things during it as well. We uh, we did scrubs for the. Local um, doctors, surgeries, and and, and healthcare centres, and uh, uh, mental health units, etc. Um, so the the team came in. They worked out how to do do that. They they did it themselves. We got some fabric from another UK mill, um, and. That was a you know a great example of creativity and problem solving. You know yourself, Kate, how how mm. difficult what seems like a simple garment, how <laughs> difficult that process <laughs> can be to get. Um, and we did that up in Elgin and then down in Hoyk, we didn't have the the sewers to do that. So we we got some fabric and we donated it to a local sewing team as well. Um so that was really nice. And uh more recently we did a we did this beautiful wide um cashmere scarf in a, a rainbow pattern for the end response for the nhs
1: i've got a confession to make so when i was looking on your linkedin profile today of course i spotted the rainbow scarf so i've now 200 pounds the lighter because just it was a beautiful product and what, what an amazing idea because you know you're giving giving half of the pro, the no you're giving full half of the sale price to the nhs aren't you
0: yeah, I mean, we've we've priced it so that we 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 didn't want to make any money out of it. It's it's about supporting the NHS and and what's what's going on at the moment. Um, but it was lovely to see everybody engaging with that, you know. And our social media team was getting people to tell stories about what they'd mm-hmm. made during lockdown and just engaging with that whole um, different vibe that's around at the moment. This more caring vibe and this more um, creative vibe as well mm. you know i i can't even remember who came up with the idea of the product and they'll they'll kill me if they hear this that they, they came up <laughs> with the idea but it certainly wasn't me but it was a lovely idea and and the design team and the the dye house and and everybody um worked to put that together and it's, it's a lovely product I'm, I'm glad you've got one because it isn't it really nice
1: well i thought that's an investment piece i mean like all johnston's um pieces are investment pieces that's how i see it if you spend you know two three hundred pounds on a on a piece of cashmere or a cashmere jumper you buy that as investment investment piece and it lasts and this is why i try to explain to people and i and your product really defines the kind of cost per wear of something because it lasts a very long time because of what you've just said about what goes into blending the fibers and 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 all the knowledge you've got from 300 years do you, is you know that just seems to be what sort of epitomizes Johnson's is is that quality in the fact that it there is longevity in, in it but at the same time you also do London Fashion Week so yeah. how do you balance the the design versus making sure that what you're doing is a, an investment piece
0: I mean I think if we design something and somebody buys it and they, they love it for a season and then they they never wear it again I think we've failed you know mm. this, this is what we're trying to create is is those pieces in your wardrobe that you take out year after year and you love you know you don't just wear them you you love them you have a a relationship with them Um, and we all know we've all got those pieces they could come from any brand Um, not necessarily expensive not necessarily cashmere but that's what we're trying to create Um, product that people actually care about and want to wear for a long period of time Um, at the same time you don't want to be old-fashioned. You don't. You want to be contemporary. You want to be current. Um, so, it is important that we show that something which is valid for today. But when we go to London Fashion Week, we're not showing gimmicks or on novelties. What we're trying to show is the craftsmanship and the beauty. You know, we, when we have when we do London Fashion Week, people can walk up and touch the garments. They can see the garments hanging on a the rail. They can feel them. They can see them. They can, you know, it's a tactile product. You want to, whenever somebody says cashmere, you want to touch it. And if you touch it, you know, you'll feel that that beauty coming through. it, something quite unique and, and, and distinctive. So I guess, you know, people are, are going a little bit funny about Fashion Weeks now and saying, well, you know, is this part of fast fashion? Well, we couldn't be any further from fast fashion. We we talk about slow luxury um, because it does take time to make. You want to wear it for a long period of time, um, but London Fashion Week does give us that showcase that we can actually engage with people from all around the world who can see this product, you can have, you can understand what we do, um, which is great. You know, we 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 are a well kept secret, I guess, in in the fashion industry um but we don't want to keep that secret too well.
1: Mm. And how much of your business is wholesale and export? I would imagine exports quite a big amount, isn't it?
0: Yeah, exports quite a, quite a huge amount. I mean, most of our product that we make, um it goes into other people's brands. So we're a big private label supplier to top luxury brands from from around the world. Um and a lot of those are based in the UK, but if they're based in the UK, they'll sell most of their products outside of the UK. Mm. And we sell to yeah. a lot of the top French brands as well. And we've got some brilliant relationships with them. Um, and in terms of our own brand, um, London and, and the, the British market is a big market for us. but The biggest market is, is Japan, um, where we've had a, had a wonderful business for many years. Um, And we've got good business in America, good business in the, in the rest of Europe. So it is kind of a global operation. We've got offices in New York and Tokyo and Paris and Dusseldorf. Um, so yeah, it has to be global. I think at this level for, to do the volumes we do, it has to be a global um,
1: operation. Mm. Mm. And how then do you think Brexit will affect the business? Yeah,
0: it's a good question. Um, Brexit on its own isn't the the issue. The issue is, is is tariffs and access to the European market. I mean, it's very yeah. important for us to have access to that. We've got some fat, fantastic partners. Um, our our biggest many of our biggest customers are located within Europe, and obviously, when we compete to supply them, we're typically competing with Italian mills. Um, so, it is is really important that we get good access to those markets.
1: Mm. What about J- countries like Japan? Is that a big market for you as well?
0: It is. It's our biggest branded market.
1: Mm. Yeah, but you've got haven't got stores there like John Smedley have. have you? We don't
0: have our own stores there, no. We've not gone gone down that route there and I, and I don't think I would I don't think I would feel confident to run a store in in, in Japan and and it is difficult retail's getting difficult for everyone at the moment obviously. Um, so, we have stores within the UK, um, which are beautiful stores and good places for people, even from around the world, to engage with the brand. Um, a lot of Japanese people come into our store in New Bond Street. Um, a lot of Chinese people come in as well. And it's a good place to discover more of the brand than they might see in their home market. So, mm. they discover a broader range of products that maybe they didn't know that we made.
1: Mm. but as we've as the situation at the moment where people aren't traveling how 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 much is johnson's becoming more digital and more online than it was before you always had a good online presence but have you have you been sort of building that up as the plans to increase that going forward
0: we, we have we're, we're very fortunate we have a, a brilliant e-commerce team and we have a very skilled uh, marketing team we have some really good digital skills which is not always easy when you're in such a rural location I was
1: thinking yeah Um,
0: but but we've we've built up this fantastic team and they've been really growing the business online and growing our digital presence through social etc and uh, influencers and and we've got real momentum there what I'm realizing is that we need to back that momentum and that team even more now Mm. going forward obviously we've been in this very strange world where Um, physical retail turned off completely for for a long period of time. And it does make you think about how you deal with that digital space. Um, And what we're really focusing on now is how we can optimize that and make decisions right across what we do in in product, what we do in pricing, what we do in um, our marketing team that really optimizes that digital visibility and how people Mm. understand our brand um, in the digital space you know as we grow and as we develop new businesses overseas it's wonderful when people can come to the mill and it's wonderful when people can come to one of our stores and they can get a feel for us and they can they can make that emotional connection they need to be able to make that emotional connection online or or, yeah. or through their social media as well and that's that's a much more difficult proposition you know it's easy to put up a shop and we have a wonderful shop and it's it's great um but the next stage really is to say well how do we really emotionally connect and tell our story in all those digital spaces? So that's that's the next challenge for us.
1: Mm. I mean, Burberry did that very well, didn't they, with the making of a Burberry scarf? I presume that was woven at your mill.
0: A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated 120 years of supplying Burberry. Um, we had loads of the Burberry people came online. Um, we talked about the past and the history from when we first uh, supplied tweeds to Thomas Burberry back in 1900 Um, and they work with every single department in our organisation they are challenging they're demanding they push (laughs) us to go even further Um, but we love that you know it makes us better as an organisation.
1: Yeah because when I was at Burberry in the mid-90s in the accessories department all of the cashmere and that was bought from Burberry and you know what's great is that they're still working with Johnston's, whereas there's so many other partnerships between British brands and British mills and factories that have broken up because they've moved over to China. But they've they've stuck with you on the cashmere, which is really good to see.
0: What what I what I love about the way that they work is they genuinely see it as a partnership. So they yeah. they are not um, they're, they're good partners to have. They challenge us. Um, that it's, it's frustrating at times if we can't get it quite right for them, but they they push us in the right way.
1: Mm. So in what ways have you made the business more sustainable? Because it is certainly the word that everyone is talking about now. How, how do you make a business that's that old um, sustainable?
0: It's a big topic, isn't it? Because when you mm. talk about sustainability, I think people tend to start with one aspect of, of what they do, and they say, "Well, how's we're going to make that sustainable?" And then we're going to talk about that because we do everything from dyeing, you know, through the weaving or knitting and through the finishing, um, and we control every process. We can, for example, sign up to zero discharge of hazardous chemicals, which we've done. We've been working to those standards for several years, but now yeah. we've signed up um, as, as part- partners to that. And that's very difficult to do if you're only controlling one part of the process because you don't know what somebody else is putting into it in the other areas. Um we are working, I, I personally um, have been very closely involved with the Sustainable Fibre Alliance, which works on cashmere production in Mongolia, and now looking at how we take that into China as well. And that's been a long uh, labor of love, really, for, for us in terms of how do we ensure animal welfare in the supply chain? How do we ensure the grassland management in the supply chain? Um, and lots of exciting projects that we've done along the way in that so for example um we got the SSFA to run for us a program where um we go into schools and we have teachers teaching sustainable grassland management to mongolian school children who will go on to be herders um and that was the first time sustainability had been taught in in mongolian schools which which is is lovely and it's it's fantastic and we would have we we're going on to our second year this year. We've had to deliver that in an online form, obviously, because um, of the current situation and because travel's been restricted in Mongolia. Um, but we see that going from strength to strength, and it is a long-term problem. You know, these are these are challenges that they don't have quick fixes. You no, know, it's not like you just go out and you say, "I'm just going to make a sustainable project program." overnight it's, it's done yeah. if you're going to do this seriously then you know when we did the zero discharge of hazardous chemicals we had to work with the dye manufacturers we had to work through all the processes and replace things and change things and look at formulations and when we're looking at sustainability we have to go into how the community manages that land what are the traditional practices and how can we build on those and get real long-term support so it is not a there are no quick fixes here I think that's yeah. the big line that's being told is, you know, you can just suddenly make it sustainable.
1: Mm. Actually, you've
0: got to work every single day in a lot of different ways. Um, and the, the advantage that we have in this is we control virtually everything that goes into, into our product. We do 90% of the processing, 90% of the manufacturing processes on-site, in our own mills, and so we can do it exactly the way we want it to be done.
1: Yeah, Excellent. So what are your plans for the future for Johnson's of Elgin? I'm sure we've um, got big plans.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, Johnson's of Elgin, it's not something that I want to transform into something that it's not, you know, so it mm. is, I, you know, what we have uh, as a company is, is very special. I'm very privileged to to look after it. The challenge I was given by the family who owns it. When, when I joined the company, they said to me, you know, you're, your tasks are really simple, you just need to make it last for another two hundred years, and that's, <laughs> that's how we're running things you know we're running it with a view of that long term thing so sustainability yeah. becomes very important training, investment in technology, doing things the right way become much more important when you look at it through that perspective than if you're looking at the next month 's results now yeah. obviously you don't want to make profit and you want to be uh, liquid and all the rest of the stuff, but if you're looking at that long term Picture. I think you do things in the right way within our industry. You know, you make the product the right way. You look after the reputation. You make quality product, even when you could make it a little bit cheaper. Nobody would notice for a little while, but it's not the right thing to do in the long term. So, um, it's 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 my privilege to look after it for the next however many years. Um, but what I'd like is to pass it on an even stronger position so that the next person can make it even stronger again Um, and it's building continually building those next blocks for the future
1: brilliant simon that is really fantastic it's been really really fascinating talking to you today i love the fact that you are you consider yourself looking after johnson's of elgin so that to make it good for the next 200 years i think that's brilliant thank you Thank you very much for joining me. and where's the best place for people to find Johnson's Elgin? Um,
0: now now that we've reopened all our stores, we've got stores in uh, London in New Bond Street, in Edinburgh in Moultrie's Walk online, or in you know many of the world's top department stores. most of them stock us in some area. Um, so you don't have to look too hard.
1: Brilliant. Thank you very That's much, Kate. Simon. Right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Make It British podcast. I make an episode every Tuesday, plus there's bonus episodes occasionally. So make sure you subscribe in your favourite podcast app. And if you're looking to find British-made brands or UK manufacturers, check out the directory on the Make It British website at makeitbritish.co.uk forward slash directory. Thank you for listening. Bye bye.